0: This little podcast is a safe space to talk about the movies we love, the good and the bad, acknowledging their issues and celebrating their successes with a healthy dose of nostalgia thrown in for good measure. And because I'm a librarian by date and don't need an excuse to talk books at the end of our conversation, I'll give you a few book recommendations you might like if this movie sounds like your cup of tea. Before we dive into today's movie pick, 1985's Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, a quick ask. If you like the podcast and want a free and super easy way to support what I do, please consider rating or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen. You can also just share the podcast with someone or someones you know that you think might enjoy the fun as well. Word of mouth marketing. I would be ever so appreciative. So today, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. I don't know why I selected this one for today's conversation, except that it came out in 1985. Uh, My only memory of it, because it has been years and years and years since I did a rewatch, was Tina Turner. That was it. I remember her and her giant earrings that looked odd. And I remember the song you know, the one that we don't need another hero for someone who says they will never sing on the podcast. I feel like I do a lot of singing and I'm sorry for that. I'm not a huge Tina Turner fan. I'm like not anti Tina Turner, her song. Um, what's love got to do with it. My brother convinced me when I was little. So our family doctor and my mom actually worked for him. His name was Dr. Rooley. And my brother convinced me that the lyrics of the song, what's love got to do it. No, how do you do it? What's love, Dr. Rooley? Dr. Rooley. (laughs) I don't know how he convinced me that that was what the lyrics were, but he did. And so that is my only connection with Tina Turner. So I I just picked this one out randomly. I hadn't really meant to pick a theme for this month. I'd settled into themes for the last couple months. And I was like, you know what? I I just want to kind of watch whatever. Um, But I'm in love with the 1985 movie selection. It may be... It may be my favorite year in movies, which is a. A big statement, I do believe, but you've got The Goonies, Back to the Future, Clue, The Breakfast Club, Legend, Return to Oz, Witness, Teen Wolf, Silverado, The Color Purple, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, St. Almost Fire, Real Genius, The Last Dragon, Girls Just Want to Have Fun, Vision Quest, Lady Hawk, The Legend of Billy Jean, Enemy Mind, The Jewel of the Nile, The Peanut Butter Solution, Ewoks, The Battle of Endor, American Flyers, Follow That Bird, I could go on and on I won't, <laughs> but I could. It was just a great year in movies. Now, are all of those movies good movies? No, they are not. But are they fun, rewatchable movies? Yes, they are. Most of them, at least. In fact, I love this year of movies so much that we may just end up staying here through the end of the year and maybe into 2024. I don't know. Um, That's just kind of how I'm feeling right now. There's a lot of ones that I would like to rewatch and I would like to talk about. So I think... That's what we're going to do. We're going to talk 1985s through the end of the year. unless you know, I want to throw in some kind of Christmassy thing, which could happen. You never know. I never really know what I'm going to do from week to week on this particular podcast. Uh, So that is what we're doing. And today we are talking Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Before we get into the context of the movie, let's listen to the trailer. The world had been through a trial by fire and only the greatest warriors and their deadliest enemies emerged from the flames. Who are you? Nobody. I can feel it. The dice are rolling. (laughs) He was the one they called mad. But he's just a raggedy man. But to those whose lives hung in the balance, where's the waiting ones? Waiting for what? Waiting for you. He was the one they called hero. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Times here now. Mad Max is back in Beyond Thunderdome. Gibson. Tina Turner. Mad Max. Beyond Thunderdome. So Beyond Thunderdome was directed and written, he was a co-writer on it by George Miller and this guy named George Ogilvie. I don't his he's got a very strange name. Now I knew George Miller as the genius behind all of the Mad Max movies. And the dude I do think was a genius. He had a vision. It's kind of a wild and kooky vision, but he had a vision and he had an aesthetic and he made it come to life in pretty spectacular ways. But I did not know that he also directed the witches of Eastwick, which is kind of a messed up movie. (laughs) Susan Sarandon Cher, I forget who the other person was. Was it Michelle Pfeiffer? Maybe, um, Jack Nicholson. It's just kind of a crazy movie. We'll probably talk about it one day. Uh, and that one's great. But did you know that he also worked on Babe, Babe Pig in the City, and Happy Feet? Now, let's let's just not skip past this. The guy who gave us Tom Hardy being chased by a dude named Immortan Joe and his kind of Gimp-esque posse also wrote and produced the sweetly fantastical kid series about a little pig who acts like a cattle dog. Just let that let that settle in for just a minute. I have absolutely no idea what to do with that information. Oh, or, you know, I also didn't know that Mr. George Miller was born in Chinchilla, Queensland. I knew the Queensland part, but the Chinchilla part also threw me for a bit of a loop. I did not know there was such place as Chinchilla, Queensland. So just fascinating facts that I thought I'd share. I know nothing else about the other George, the Mr. Ogilvy, uh, or what he worked on. He did work with Miller, it seems quite a bit. But I do wonder how co-directorship works. I've been thinking about there's a lot about the behind the scenes, and I've I've mentioned this before. I would love to be able to sit down with a director and or a producer or, or even an actor to be like, give me the inside scoop about how all of this works. Because is there like I assume there's one main director. George Miller would be the main director and then another guy who just kind of does whatever whatever the main director says. Is that how it works? Or what if the two directors have like different visions? Cause I assume that it's like there's so much going on. Cause I know they kind of did this with the Harry Potter movies too, that if you wanted to film with a the director there for every particular scene, it would take forever to do that. So one set would be filming one scene and another set would be filming another scene. So you kind of do have to have a director at all of the different sets, I would guess. But what if with the main director not being there, the the pseudo director takes things in a in a direction that the other director doesn't like and then do they have to do all of the reshooting and isn't that very expensive? I just I have a lot of questions, a lot of questions about how all of this happens because I love films so much and I love the storytelling of films so much that I'd, I'd actually like to kind of know more about the behind the scenes. So who knows, maybe one day this podcast will just take off. It will just skyrocket and it will put me in front of people that I can ask these questions of instead of you guys who just put up with my questions. And I do appreciate you putting up with my questions. Uh, but in the end, who gets the final say? I would assume in this say, this instance it's George Miller, but if he's not there, how does that work? Oh, there's just a smidge of production information this time around, which is kind of nice that there was a little something. It says Beyond Thunderdome was the first Mad Max film made without producer... Byron Kennedy, who was killed in a helicopter crash in 1983. Director George Miller was hesitant to continue without his producing partner, saying later, I was reluctant to go ahead. And then there was a sort of need to, let's do something just to get over the shock and grief of all that. There's a title card at the end of the film, before the credits roll, that reads for Byron. I think that's very sweet. I, I can't imagine, especially if you've worked with somebody a lot, especially on these particular properties, and then there's a tragedy, that would have to be very hard to kind of pick it up and continue. Miller co-directed the film with George the other George, with whom he had worked on the 1983 television miniseries, The Dismissal. Don't know what that is, probably an Australian thing. About this decision, he said, I had a lot on my plate. I asked my friend George, who was working on the miniseries, could you come and help me? But I don't remember the experience because I was doing it just, you know, I was grieving. So... Apparently, he wouldn't have minded whatever or noticed whatever direction the other George took things. For the film, Miller and Ogilvy employed a group workshopping rehearsal technique that they had developed. I want to know more about that, too. What does that mean? The exterior location filming took place primarily in the mining town of Cooper Petty. Cooper Petty. Though the set for Bartertown was built at an old brickworks, the brick pit at Homebush Bay in Sydney's western suburbs and the children's camp was in the Blue Mountains. According to the cinematographer Dean Semler, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome proved far more challenging than Mad Max 2. We were dealing with more varied environments than before and it was essential that each of the worlds created for the film have a distinctly different look. So that's quite interesting. Um Star- the movie stars Mel Gibson as Max, Mad Max, Rockin Tansky, Rochansky. <laughs> I should probably know that. I do they when do they ever say his name? I mean, I think it's maybe muttered once in this movie. Maybe um, a lone warrior who was kind of a main force patrol officer. It was a cop before all hell broke loose in society. And it's been so long since I watched Road Warrior or Mad Max 2, that I don't remember what caused the apocalypse. I'll have to go back in and read more about that. He's got a monkey he drives around with, but that monkey has no loyalty because he just keeps hopping around to other people during the movie. Uh, there's Bruce Spence as Jebediah, a pilot who trades stolen goods in Bartertown. Bruce, as I was looking up his filmography, he was also in like Lord of the Rings as a black lieutenant, so he must have been like an orc. And then um, he was also in one of the the Star Wars, one of the first three, not the original three. One, he was in either one, two, or three. I think three by looking at the poster. I wasn't paying attention to the title, so he's been around. Um, Adam Cockburn as Jebediah Junior, Jeb's son and helper. He's kind of feisty little gent. I liked him. <laughs> he's not in it much, but I liked him. Tina Turner as Auntie. They say in the filmography in the credits that it's. Auntie Entity, but you never heard Entity muttered, so she's just known as Auntie, the ruler of Bartertown. Frank Thring as the collector, he runs the trade and exchange, exchange network in Bartertown. Angelito Rosito, Angelo Rosito, that's better. The, as the master, he's the engineer who is responsible for Bartertown's electricity and Helen Bude, <laughs> Bude, as Savannah Nix, one of the oldest members of the tribe of children. Thunderdome had an estimated budget of $10 million. It grossed $7.2 million during its opening weekend in the U.S. and would go on to make $36.2 million worldwide. So it did earn back its budget, but I guess it was um, kind of a dud compared to its predecessors. It just didn't do as well at the box office. Crazy percentage difference on Rotten Tomatoes. Crazy, crazy. And it's not the way I thought it was going to (laughs) go. So the critic score is 81% and has a 49% audience score. So it's certified fresh among critics, but it's a splat among the audience. And that audience score is with over 50,000 audience ratings. So it's not like it was just five people and... None of them liked it. Quite a few people wrote reviews. The critics' consensus reads, Beyond Thunderdome deepens the Mad Max character without sacrificing the amazing vehicle choreography and stunts that made the originals memorable. I kind of glanced through the audience reviews a little bit. And what it comes down to is that people (laughs) people miss the gratuitous violence. Everybody was mad that it was just not as dark and gritty as the other ones, which on a certain level makes me a little happy because I get it. I get it when you have a property. It's like if you took something like John Wick, which I have talked about as being a comfort movie for me, even though there's a lot of death. There's just something about efficient assassinations that I find soothing, which... It's a conversation that we can have one day, I think. Um, but if you had then come out with the John Wick where there's none of that, it's just kind of this if he's running around with a group of children, you'd be disappointed because you go into a film expecting a very particular aesthetic or um, plot, and this kind of this just did not deliver. So I do get it, even though I found this movie during my rewatch fairly entertaining. Roger Ebert though. I looked up Roger's score, gave it four stars and a very solid thumbs up. In fact, he says, it's not supposed to happen this way. Sequels are not supposed to be better than the movies that inspired them. The third movie in a series isn't supposed to create a world more complex, more visionary, and more entertaining than the first two. Sequels are supposed to be creative voids. But now, here is Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Not only the best of the three Mad Max movies, but one of the best films of 1985. Raj loved this movie, apparently. That's crazy. This is in no way one of the best movies of 1985, in my opinion. Uh, But he loved it, which is just really fun to see that he just got really into it. Every once in a while, he'll throw you for a curve. Now for the summary. Um... I'm I'm gonna end up skipping a lot. I'm just, spoiler, things are gonna get skipped Um, because there's kind of a lot going on, but we'll get through it and hopefully it'll be enough that maybe I'll tempt you into a rewatch too. Maybe you're like, you know what? I should check this out from my local library because that's how I had to check it out. I couldn't find it streaming for free anywhere. Um, So go GPL for giving me that free checkout. Um, But here we go. So the time is sometime in the future. And again, I don't remember what happened It's been too long since I watched The Road Warrior. Uh, But I do like, they don't explain it, which is good. So some catastrophe has happened, which I suppose we don't really know from the outset. If this was you just stepping into this, you wouldn't necessarily know that an apocalypse has happened. But we know something is going on because this dude is just wandering around the desert in a car being pulled by camels. That's not normal. So something isn't. Right. And then out of nowhere, this other crazy dude and a young boy come flying by in an airplane, steal the car and camels, and leave this guy for dead. But he's Max, so of course he's not dead. The fellow trudges through the desert, following the tracks of his ride until he stumbles upon a place called Barter Town, which is kind of a, actually a, a good name. <laughs> is it easy? Does it just kind of lay out there what it is? Yes. Yes, it is. It seems to be a hip hop in place, not necessarily a dive I would like to spend a lot of time in, uh, but it's a place of commerce. So if you need something, it's probably there. Max starts to ask around about his rig and this guy who is that the collector guy that I mentioned earlier seems to know the person in charge and he eventually convinces him to meet the, the, the bigwig, the person in charge of Bartertown. So he ends up going to meet Auntie. So Auntie is the person that kind of founded Bartertown in the middle of the desert. This kind of, in a sense, an oasis where people could come together and trade and get what they needed. That, of course, is Miss Tina Turner. <laughs> um, she gives Max a deal. She wants him to go down into the underworld and pick a fight with the Master Blaster. So <laughs> Let me explain that. The underworld is where the energy of Bartertown is created and it is electricity made from methane and this guy named the Master is the one who figured this out. The Master is a little person who rides on the shoulder of kind of the muscle known as the Blaster. So they are Master Blaster. They are kind of a a unit of sorts. And actually the Master is the ruler of Bartertown in a lot of ways because he is controlling the actual energy and electricity of the place. So if he gets mad at Auntie, he can just shut off the the electricity, and she has no recourse but to do whatever he says. She's tired of that, so she wants Max to go and pick a fight with him and fight Blaster because if they can get Blaster out of the way, if they can get the muscle out of the way, they think that they control control the master, the, the brain. Um, so he goes down into the underworld just to kind of get a feel, see what his best recourse is. He meets the master. He meets blaster, discovers blasters, um, Achilles heel of sorts that he doesn't like loud noises, high pitched noises. Um, so the max goes back up to the, the upper ground to Bartertown and tells auntie, you know what? All right, I'll take care of blaster. What do I need to do? And she's like, well, you need to pick a fight with him because any, we're going to call it a duel, any duel that happens in Bartertown." ends up happening in the Thunderdome. So let me explain the Thunderdome. The Thunderdome is literally a dome um, where people climb up and lay on it. And then the two people that are fighting, it's a lot like Gladiator in a sense, the two people that are fighting are attached to bungees. And so the people that are sitting on top of the dome, they're holding on to weapons. And the fighters can bungee and jump and fling themselves to other parts of the dome to grab the weapons. It's kind of crazy, <laughs> but also very smart and very ingenious. Um, so Max is getting bested by the blaster, who knows. I mean, Max had no idea what this dome was and how it kind of functions. And the blaster obviously does. It's not his first go around in the Thunderdome. Um, and so they are fa- fighting and Max is losing, but he does have a whistle in his pocket. So eventually he gets a hold of the whistle, starts to blow it. That of course upsets the blaster because it's a loud, high-pitched noise, um, and he starts. Max is hitting him with this giant mallet hammer thingy, um, and he knocks off the blaster's helmet. And he's about to go for the kill move, but he realizes. He looks down and he realizes that the blaster actually has Down syndrome and has the mind of a child. And he just he can't do it. He he refuses to kill him. Uh, this refusal kind of ticks off Auntie because they had a deal. So uh, she ends up killing the Blaster anyway, which is really sad. She grabs the Master. They now have control of the Master, but because Max broke their deal, she spins a wheel of punishment. We're gonna, I guess, uh, and it lands on the Gulag. So she san- sends him out, basically just out into the desert where it's assumed he will die, um, but he doesn't. Because he's Max and he has nine lives. Instead, he finds himself in this oasis filled with children. And it's actually a really nice place. They have water. They have shelter. Um, they've survived by themselves for a long time. And they are apparently the the um, survivors of a plane crash. Like a Boeing 747 plane crash. And the plane's still out in the desert. We'll get to that later. We'll talk about that more in a bit. They think... Max is the long-lost Captain Walker who has returned to fly them back to civilization. What's really cool about the children, though, is that they kind of show the importance of oral tradition. They have almost done, like, cave paintings of sorts. And, uh, and a lot of conversation, they tell the stories every night because they want all of the kids to, to know the stories of how they got there and where they're going and what life was like before, even though it's in almost language of their own, it's this broken English. So you could tell it's children that did not have any education. (laughs) It's kind of, it's interesting. Whoever wrote that part, it's very interesting what, what words they chose to use. Um, so that part's kind of neat. Um, so they are telling, they think that Max is this Captain Walker and they are telling him, you know, look, look, we've kept this tradition going. We've kept the story going now, fly us back to the city, fly us back to where civilization is. Um, they think it's still out there and thriving somewhere, but despite him telling them otherwise, um, and He's like, no, and he tries to stop them. A faction of them are kind of fed up with waiting, and they decide to head out into the nothing, the desert, to try to find it on their own. Max tries to stop them. They leave in the dark of night, knowing they're going to get themselves killed. He starts after them with a few other kids who refuse to be left behind. So a big group of them stay at the oasis the others head out with max to try to catch the crew that had left lucky he did go after them because they were all about to die in quicksand <laughs> he pulls them all out um, by that time they're kind of they're closer to bartertown than the oasis so they they keep going into bartertown they end up starting a riot and a revolution because they steal the master i, I don't know what the end goal of that was uh, i think it's because they think that maybe he can get the plane that is still out in the desert flying again, which Max would know that's not true because the plane is clearly, I mean, it's in one piece-ish, but it's like all the windows are broken out. It could not fly. I don't know. That part isn't really explained. They end up escaping Bartertown in a truck train. I mean, it really is a truck built like a train and there's a track um but Auntie is kind of pretty peeved and, and rallies the troops to catch them during the the riot revolution they end up destroying the methane reserves so you know all of the electricity is gone so she wants the master back so that she can rebuild which of course means the stereotypical mad max desert chase and vehicle fight which is always the best part of a mad max film this one's not so bad it's kind of fun to see the kids get involved And then in a random turn of events, um, they end up with the pilot from the beginning of the movie who stole Max's ride. Max convinces the dude to fly him and the children out of trouble. But with all the extra weight, the plane is too heavy to take off. So instead of... Going with them, Max hops into a car and clears a path through Auntie's fleet so that they can make their getaway. Auntie lets Max go. I don't understand why that part either. There's a lot I don't understand. Uh, Then there's a shot of the plane flying and the kids end up creating a new home in the ruins of one of the old cities. And they talk about how they kind of, again, keep that oral tradition alive. Um, And they start... They're up in the skyscrapers, and it's not electricity, it's like fires, but they have lights trying to bring people back into the city, and that's that's kind of it. That's the end. Max is still wandering around the desert, and the kids somehow continue to survive on their own wherever they land. (laughs) Emily's thoughts and comments. I really like how the action starts immediately in this movie. No recapping of the previous movies, no set up a reminder of the apocalypse or why this dude is just wandering around the desert or who this dude even is. I mean, it comes out a little bit in the conversations with Auntie and she's like, who are you? And he's like, I was a cop, but that's as far as it goes. They don't explain a lot. The aesthetic of the characters and the fact that they're kind of a bit wild and feral in nature kind of sets the scene though. So you know what is going on without being told what is going on. And I think that is amazing storytelling. I do not, however... Like Mel Gibson's long hair. There's a lot to say about Mel Gibson. He is extremely problematic and kind of a horrible person. Not even kind of. He is a horrible person. Um, So sometimes it's difficult to go back and watch his old movies. There are some that I do really love. And so in my brain to justify it, <laughs> like Tequila Sunrise, which I love, is not his movie. It is Michelle Pfeiffer and Kurt Russell's movie. I am watching it for them, and he just happens to be in it. Uh, or Bird on a Wire, which is probably my favorite Mel Gibson movie, is not a Mel Gibson movie. It's a Goldie Hawn movie. Um, it, it's it's just sad. It's sad that somebody that had such an amazing career could be such a horrible person. Uh, but Regardless of that, his hair in this particular movie is disgusting. It's this long hair that looks filthy, but he has to comb it because the kids later on also have wild hair, but it's all matted and dreaded, and his wasn't, so he must have been combing his hair. They ended up cutting his hair. The kids did while he was asleep or almost dead, uh, um, which I was kind of glad they did because it looked a lot better afterwards. And I always kind of forget that Mel is Australian. I mean, I know that he is, but he's in his later movies has done so well masking that Australian accent that I forget. He couldn't always mask it in his early movies. I mean, there are definitely times in Tequila Sunrise where it slips and you're like, you are not not American. Uh, You know who else couldn't really hide it well in many of his early movies, early things was Heath Ledger. Just couldn't hide it. Um, So, he's gone too soon. He still makes me sad that he's gone. Uh, Just so we know, if we ever experience an apocalyptic situation, and I don't really care what it is, um, it could be anything. It could be a disease, a virus, um, meteors raining down from the heavens. I hope I die immediately, immediately. I don't even want to imagine surviving in that kind of an environment. And the way that fiction plays out apocalyptic scenarios, it really brings out the ugly, Of humanity and and how just kind of terrible people are like there's always the pockets of people that rally together and help others survive but then there's inevitably a cult or a person who comes to power and is just wielding that power over people and it is terrifying and I just hope I die really quick because well I I probably will there's no way I could survive um but I just don't I don't want to I don't want to experience those things I just want to be gone and I don't understand the timeline of this particular movie <laughs> at all. How are there such young children in this oasis? There are no adults. There's older teens, and then there's relatively small children. No babies, but some of these kids are pretty young. So how long has the apocalypse been happening? When when did this apocalyptic scenario— Because I would think it's had to have been years for a barter town to have been established. It feels like a good deal of time has had to have passed. But then how are there kids that are that young stranded out in the desert? I mean, even if this airplane crashed, it couldn't have just been filled with children, right? That's weird. And if there were adults that were just out there having babies, why did all of the adults leave? That doesn't make sense. And they don't talk about like, this is the graveyard where all the adults are buried as if they all died for some reason. And what are the odds that no one else has found this oasis? I mean, it's a, I would like to live there. (laughs) I mean, I get, if I survive an apocalypse, I hope I just find an oasis where nobody finds me that has water and shelter and food. I, I maybe I would survive. Maybe I'd figure out how to hunt and clean. I don't know. But I it just doesn't make sense. This place doesn't make sense. And then there's no children in Bartertown. You never see a child in Bartertown. Even though one character it is mentioned, he he's kind of a he works with the pigs and the methane down in the underworld and he's there because that's what they kind of the wheel of um the wheel of punishment was spun for him because he killed a pig to feed his children. So he has to work in the underworld. That's what he landed on on his wheel of punishment. And so he, like I said, he killed a pig to to feed his family. So it's assumed there are children somewhere, but you don't see any children. So why are all the children in one place? I just, I find that odd. And my last thought here. So at the end of the movie. Not towards the end of the movie. They've they've caused the riot and the revolution in Bartertown, and there just happens to be a truck train that gets them out of there on tracks. Now, every scene in this movie outside of the kids' oasis is in the desert. Where where did these train tracks come from? You never saw train tracks before that train truck left the underworld. It doesn't <laughs> It doesn't make sense. And wouldn't train tracks in a desert get covered up in a sandstorm but these are perfectly cleared off and then all of a the sudden there's brush and there's like it goes over like a bridge. It doesn't it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Are there tra- I mean I'm assuming there are trains in deserty areas not like through a full desert but through deserty areas arid areas. How do you keep the track clean? How much debris can be on a track? Before a train gets derailed. See, these are the rabbit holes I end up in. Those were my thoughts about this movie. A few interesting tidbits. So Tina Turner had to shave her head for her wig to fit properly. She reportedly had no problem with that. The sandstorm at the end of the film was real, and a camera plane flew into it for some shots. The storm in its entirety hit the crew in the desert, forcing them to ride it out in their cars and wherever they could find cover. I think that would be terrifying. I just don't like sand enough for it to be everywhere. I mean, even when I go to the beach, I used to, you know, roll around in the sand or even in the ocean as you're floating. You're like, oh, or sit right as the waves come up and hit you. And now you're like, no, there's just too much sand. The film was originally not a Mad Max film. That makes sense. uh, But a post-apocalyptic Lord of the Flies film about a tribe of children who are found by an adult. It became the third Mad Max film when George Miller was suggested that Max is the man who finds the children. He was like, you know what? Let's just pull Max into it. It also reminded me a lot of Lord of the Flies. Yes, um, but they almost seemed like the Lost Boys in Hook a little bit too. I mean, I know that's way before Hook was released, um, so maybe Hook had some inspiration from Mad Max: Thunderdome. Uh, but it, there was there was a bit of a vi- that kind of vibe. Auntie's steel mail dress weighed more than 121 pounds (laughs) in the desert. She just walked around with 121 pounds of metal on her body in the desert. George Miller was given the rights to The Road Warrior and this film to get him to step aside as the director of Contact. Huh. Have you watched Contact lately? I pulled that one out not that long ago, and it is a really good movie. Really good movie. I need to just do a deep dive of um, Jodie... Foster. Just, I liked a lot of the stuff she's done, but I just, I need to deep dive her sometime. There were 600 pigs in Underworld. Buying that many would have hurt the pork market, so they rented them from a pig farmer. And that's it. That's all my interesting tidbits. 600 pigs. I don't think we really see 600 pigs. Maybe they had to swap them out from time to time. I mean, I just, that place had to have smelled. Huh. Does this movie hold up? You know, why not? Yes, yes, it does. It it does. the The aesthetic, the, it as I have mentioned many times throughout this episode, it really does work. The vision that George Miller has and the way that he can pull that off um, is pretty spectacular. And so, overall, I would say yes, it holds up. Is it a spectacular movie like Roger Ebert goes on and on saying? I don't think so. No, but I I think it's worth rewatching. So if you haven't, I would go back for a rewatch. As for movie night recommendation. All right. Hear me out. Just hear me out. I think you should watch Waterworld. Yes, it is awful. It's an awful movie, but it's post-apocalyptic, just like Thunderdome. And you have a dude who doesn't really care about others, just wants to survive a lot like Max. The people with the fuel are in charge. That's very similar. Um, You know, there's a a special child involved and there's lots of children in Thunderdome. You get to see Kevin Costner play a fish. At, At least just think about it. Think about it. Think about Waterworld. That is what I would suggest book recommendations. So if you like a good apocalypse and watching the ways in which society just crumbles, may I suggest a fun dystopian novel or two? I got really into dystopias for a while, and then they made me sad, and I had to back off a little bit. But I do really like um, that kind of fiction. I like fiction that makes you think. It's, to me, a little more accessible than a lot of science fiction, especially really academically... (laughs) science-focused science fiction, um, because it's often a world that you're familiar with that is turned on its head. Uh, So there are elements to the story that are familiar that make it even more terrifying. So I highly do recommend, I keep saying that, I recommend dystopian fiction if you're in the mood for it. If you're not, it can be very sad and very upsetting. So only read it if, if you're ready for that kind of thing. Um, but you could definitely read Ernest Cline's Ready Player One, not only for the 80s nostalgia, since we've got Thunderdome in 85, but also to see how messed up the world can get. Um, you could hit up a classic like A Brave New World, Animal Farm by George Orwell. I mean, that has pigs, so <laughs> you could follow that theme. Something more contemporary, a couple of my favorites are The Measure by Nikki Ehrlich. I might have talked about that one before, but... That one stuck with me a lot, and it's not quite as depressing. To me, there's a lot of hope in it as well, Um, but it's also upsetting. Like You get get in those moments like, what would I do? What would I do if I was given this particular choice? Or I would suggest reading Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, one of my favorite science fiction dystopias of all time. The miniseries, uh, I think it's on HBO Max, is actually, as much as I love the book, I think the miniseries is even better. Than the book. There are just a lot of great ones to choose from. If none of those tickle your fancy, just hit me up. I've got a ton more in my back pocket that I could suggest. And with that, that is all I have for today. Thank you so much for listening. Really, it is so appreciated. If you haven't already, I hope you subscribe so that we can keep going on this journey together. And if you've got the time, it would be awesome if you could rate and review so that other individuals who like random conversations about pop culture with someone who doesn't really know what they're talking about but has a good time doing it well those people can join in on the fun as well or if you want to share the podcast that would be pretty awesome too you can follow me on instagram and facebook at a bit of fun with emily go have yourself a bit of fun today and i will see you next time